Okay, so this is the Shadow of a Doubt podcast, my friend, or I'm your friend. I don't, Matt Olson. We are friends. We are friends. There you go. We are friends. You and I are friends. Mixer's <laughs> mic. What does that mean? Is that like a four track? Or? I'll show you. Yeah. Do you see these uh, mics? Those are mics right on the I, mixer. I'm not interested in your sex toy. <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't know what you do with that in your butt, but you know, I don't. <laughs> you know, you know, it's just for times when I'm lonely. Now that I'm recording, don't play innocent. <laughs> <laughs> what are we talking about first? Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna introduce this again because I don't know how I'm gonna yeah. edit and cut it. But let's. Uh, what, what you pick? What, what do you want to do? You want to do uh, Terminator? Or you want to do Star Trek Two? I'm f- I'm fine for either. Okay, let's do Star Trek Two. Okay, we'll like go kind of semi chronological. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's chronological because Star Trek Two is yeah. So I'm opening up a beer here. You're hearing my keys. I swapped out a squeaky chair <laughs> with my Steve. Cheers. Cheers. We're drinking Sapporos. Yep. I'm here with uh, my friend Steve Grest. Uh, the Steve and I we met when we were 20, right? I think so. So we've been friends for for you know, years. Yeah. Hello, Secret Movie Clubbers, and welcome to Secret Movie Club Podcast eighty six. Uh, this is a this episode today is unique. It's actually stitched together from a number of rough draft podcasts that we did before we really kicked off uh, the podcast in 2020. So you're going to be hearing from uh, some of my friends who are, I think, extremely talented, extremely funny. Uh, I love spending time with them. Matt Olson uh, and I are going to talk about Hitchcock's Shadow of a Doubt. Brian Hatfield and I are going to actually talk about three other Hitchcocks, Rear Window, North by Northwest, and Psycho. And Steve Grest and I are going to be talking about Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and um, James Cameron's Terminator with some peck and paw and thrown in there. And then with everybody, we, we go everywhere. So today's lost podcast, in a way, is uh, going to be one of those epic movie conversations that uh, goes. It's it, This episode today is going to be much longer than our normal, tight, uh, under 50-minute podcast. And that's largely in part due to the fact that our chief creative content officer, Connor Lloyd Cruz, is and his um, amazing years and amazing sense of pace is not behind this. So blame it on me. Uh, but also, too, uh, we're trying. I'm trying to recreate here what I hope is just one of those conversations uh, that uh, just winds and goes everywhere. I hope you enjoy it. Um, before we get to it, it, today is December 31st, 2021, and I want to wish everybody a happy end of 2021. I want to wish you a happy new year, happy 2022, and I wish you your best year yet in, in 2022. We have... A lot of work ahead of us in 2022. I, I think at this point, we just got to accept that uh, the COVID pandemic is on its way to becoming an endemic. And, um, you know, we're just going to deal with it every year. And, and God willing, over time, this virus uh, mellows and we get our vaccines and we're all able to just deal with it as it comes in the winters and goes in the springs and the summers. So, uh I just wish everybody the best dealing with yet another brutal winter, but, but we got to deal with it. You know, this is life now. So I just hope in 2022, all of us 
figure out ways to make great movies, figure out ways to make things happen, figure out ways to live our lives. Uh, and I'm just sending that fighter energy to you. Um, when you hear this, uh, it'll be New Year's weekend. You may want to check in with our social media. We're actually going to be posting just a few fun uh, clips and video essays and interviews about John Ford, our director of 2022. So if you want to do a little homework or a little prep ahead of 2022 on John Ford, we hope you'll deep dive on that. Next week, uh, Thursday, we are back with an Andrew Bujalski double of uh, mutual appreciation and computer chess. Uh, I love Andrew Bujalski. I remember seeing mutual appreciation uh, just a year or two after it came out in 2005, and uh, it was part of what's called mumblecore now. Uh, (laughs) I don't know whether you can thank or blame my generation for that. I think Bujalski and I are almost the exact same age. Um, But uh, but I, you know, like Bujalski himself says, I, I don't really think it's fair to label that on him. Mutual Appreciation is just one of those movies that really captures 2005 amazingly. It's a bit of a love triangle and a few nights in an apartment as a, a guy in a band crashes with his married friends and there's some sexual tension between him and the wife. But he's also really good friends with the husband and it's it's almost like an Eric Romare piece. It's great. And then Computer Chess goes in really weird places. It was shot on VHS equipment and uh, go becomes sci-fi. And it's just this great Computer Chess convention in 1982. That's the premise. And uh, that is in the same hotel as a swingers convention. Uh, and it's just dynamite. Um, Then on Friday, uh, you will hear this next week, but I'll just tee it up. We're going to be doing two nights Adam Sandler, two early early Adam Sandlers, uh, Happy Gilmore and Billy Madison, both on 35. And then on Saturday, two uh, mid and late period Adam Sandler, that's sort of the art house flip side of Adam Sandler, which is uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's Punch Drunk Love and the Softy Brothers' uh, Uncut Gems. And uh, we wanted to do an evolution of Adam Sandler uh, series, just a look at four movies that show 360 degrees of Adam Sandler. And uh, I hope you'll take a chance on that. He's a really fascinating guy, and his choices have been fascinating. And I think Paul Thomas Anderson and the Softies really found a way to harness his immense, what he does and what he brings in his persona into really amazing movies. I mean, Uncut Gems, I will wager over time, is going to be... uh, and Punch Drunk Love just really remembered creative indie movies. And it's just funny to then look at his, what people would call his low, dumb comedies, but ever, but they're very funny and they brought a lot of joy to a lot of teenagers. And they're also very comedically creative. So I hope you'll check that out. And uh, then our entire January 2022 is up. So just go to secretmovieclub.com to see everything we're doing. January 19th, we kick off our John Ford Director of the Year with Ford Apache on 35mm. I think a great movie to start with because it really represents its mid-period Ford. It was made in uh, 1947. Uh, Although you could probably classify that almost as late-period Ford because he's already been making movies for 30 years. And he would go on to make movies for 20 more years, but, um, uh, we'll get into more of that. I'll, I'll get into more John Ford, uh, coming up and also, uh, our film festivals finally up our 2021 Los Angeles rises film festival. So please, uh, really the easiest thing is just Google, um, 
Secret Movie Club, Cinema 35, Los Angeles Rises, and it'll pop up. It's, I believe, 11 short films. And uh, the movie makers, most of them under five minutes, and uh, the movie makers get interviewed. So if you're looking for some inspiration, look at some shorts and want to make some shorts in 2022, check that out. Uh, and, uh, also final thing I'll just say, remember at the end of January at the million dollar theater on Saturday, January 29th, we are doing dumb and dumber on 35 with uh, the Ferrelli brothers and co-screenwriter Bennett Yellen. So we also want 2022 to inaugurate more filmmakers coming in to talk about how they did it and inspire us and really build our community of movie lovers and movie makers. So if you're in the Southern California area, uh, please, um, you know, come listen to the Ferrelli brothers. You can ask them about Kingpin. There's something about Mary, whatever. Um, and Bennett Yellen. Uh, and we have other speakers and other exciting things uh, on the horizon, but I don't want to announce those till those are locked, locked, locked. So there you go. As always, you can write us a community at secretmovieclub.com. You can check out everything we do. Just Google Eventbrite and secretmovieclub.com to get tickets or go to secretmovieclub.com to, to see everything from original content to the film fest to all our backlog of podcasts. All of that's free. Uh, and uh, we'd love for you, you know, to become part of our community of, of film lovers and, and filmmakers, movie lovers, movie makers. Uh, and there you go. So let's get to it. All right. Uh, enough. This is going to be a long one. Uh, these are three different conversations had with three different friends about a whole bunch of different movies and, uh, they're stitched together. Uh, I hope, I hope you enjoy the audio editing on this. Uh, I tried to just keep the best of the best, but capture what it's like to just have one of those great winding, uh, not to get highfalutin because certainly they're not, <laughs> not like this, but in that great way that Russian novels, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky novels somehow are so tight. Uh, and yet at the same time, so digressive. I don't know how the Russians do that. Uh, I, I think the best movie conversations are <laughs> the same. So, uh, let's get to it. Hope you enjoy and, uh, happy 2022. Yeah. So shout of a doubt. Interestingly, uh, I want you to start. Um, if you, I'm happy to, but please do. You want? Okay. This is a movie from okay. 19... So, uh, 43, I believe. So uh, we'll set it up. Alfred Hitchcock, Hitchcock's personal favorite of all the movies he made. Although I think he says that with a bit of qualification. I think probably Hitch is. I mean, I can't speak for him, but I, I you know, he may even be more proud of other movies. But he he goes back to Shadow of a Doubt as I think a moment where he knew. As a filmmaker, he really achieved something, mm -hmm. whether or not it was acknowledged by everybody. Interestingly, I think it's a movie that um, gains cachet over time among people who love movies, as evidenced by the fact that I thought Shadow of a Doubt, when we showed it for Secret Movie Club, was going to be 30 people. And we had 120. Yeah. We had 80 people walk up or 70 people walk up. And only 90 walk out. <laughs> oh, Nobody walked out. Nobody walked, although we did have a splice. We did have a, it, it broke in the projector. There was a technical failure. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But people stayed. Yeah. And, and, but, um, okay, so uh, we showed in May a bunch of Hitchcock films. And as our last Hitchcock, we showed Shadow of a Doubt, 1943, Joseph Cotton, Teresa Wright, and a great cast McDonald of. Carey Don Carey. <laughs> as the uh, detective. McDonald Carey is famous because he was on Days of Our Lives for 30 years. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. He was he the detective she marries or she's going to marry? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. He becomes the head of the family on Days of Our Lives. He's like a senior citizen at that point. 
but from the late 70s until like 2000s, he was on Days of Our Lives. I never knew that. And uh, her father, sorry. Henry was, Travers. Clarence yeah. from It's a Wonderful right, Life. Right, right, right. And, and then the, uh, his friend. Hume Cronin. What's the character's name? Cocoon. I, but Hume, I can't remember. He's the neighbor. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so there are other famous people, or not famous, but people of note in that movie. Uh, totally. Yeah. Um, and, but Joseph Cotton, and, and basically, uh, so the premise is um, a man is known as the Merry Widow Killer, Joseph Cotton. We know this from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And he's at the end of his rope. He's going to be caught. And he decides he's going to go back to his family. The, the script was written by Thornton Wilder with uh, Hitchcock and Alma Rivea. I, I wish I could say her name right. Hitchcock's wife. Yeah. Alma Hitchcock. Um and, and one other woman. And one other woman. Who I looked up and she had an interesting was screenwriting she, she career. She was Hitch's... I, tell me, tell me. She wrote Viva Las Vegas. Oh, wow. Yeah. Or was a credited writer on Viva Las Vegas. I don't know how many people wrote that. So the, if anyone wrote that movie. <laughs> well, there were a, a number of writers yeah. uh, on Shadow. But but they were a team for sure. And, and essentially, so serial killer Uncle Charlie decides the only way I'm going to get out of this is to go home. And, and basically go in hiding. And he, at home, is his niece, who's named after him. Her name is also Charlie. And she reveres him and idolizes him. The whole family does. They have no idea about his, his what he really does, that he's a killer. And he comes home, and initially everyone is overjoyed, mostly. And then there is this horrible breaking of illusion for niece Charlie as she comes to realize that her uncle might be the Merry Widow Killer. That would be my... That's great. Synopsis. Yeah. And you and I saw it just a few days ago, right. a week ago, essentially, a little less than a week, uh, Memorial Day. And um, I would just put out there, um, it has always been in my top five Hitchcocks. Um, I love it. And my favorite hitch is, is Rear Window, for sure, for sure. Um, almost heads and tails. Although I'm at the point where I've seen it so many times, I don't want to see it too many times. Mm-hmm. But I love Rear Window. But Shadow, to me, is this movie where it's, it's the gift that keeps on giving. You, you know, I think about this a lot. There are movies where the first time you see them, you're like, oh, my gosh. And then you see them again, and they're less than what you remembered. I would put forward many of the movies that win Best Picture. I would also say Spies Like Us. <laughs> right. Cary Grant's like, excuse me. <laughs> I do believe you're sitting on my penis. And then you know it's that was that like, was a line in North by Northwest. No, that was a line from Dana Carvey. Oh. Anyway, but <laughs> they shoot him straight on, you know, like like this is the car, and but behind them there's got to be something. So they rear project the uh, uh, the cars, and they got really good at it in Psycho it, it, because like the cop car that comes oh, up yeah, behind. Yeah. And that's off in the back, and you can tell it's it's a projected image behind them. They're in the studio. Uh, we can tell today. But, but, but you know what's funny about all that stuff? Hey, keep going, I'm sorry. What are you going to say? No, um, so, like, like, you can tell she's looking back at the cop car. It, it's the cop car. And then for, they must have gotten shots on location because the cop goes off to the right and takes an exit right as she was like, is he following me? Because he had already stopped her. He'd already stopped Janet Lake right, right. after she was running away from the uh, with the forty thousand dollars. Right. So, but yeah, let's go back 
No, but no, the conversation will go wherever. So, so rear projection. That the funny thing about that, though, yeah, that I was is now you know you never know because like I'm talking as a forty year old, and I don't know how a fifteen year old would feel. I but you know like that never takes me out, and it's funny uh, how much you can take if it's a good story. Like it's yeah. totally rear projection. They're clearly in a studio. They're clearly yeah. driving. And sometimes, I don't know if you notice this, in Casablanca, it's the only time I've really noticed it, but they yeah. dissolve the background while they're still in the car. Which, they, they did that for real? Yeah, so they're, like, driving, and it's Bergman and Bogart, and then yeah. uh, they're driving, and then it dissolves to a totally different background of them in the forest or something, and they didn't cut or anything. It's They're still in the car, and you just go with it. You're like, okay, yeah. I guess they're in the forest yeah. now. <laughs> But it, 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 it. But I was saying, have you ever seen that uh, Robert Mitchum movie Thunder Road? Uh, no, I haven't. Oh, dude, when you get a chance. I mean, that's a conversation for another day. But it's it's Robert Mitchum who I love, and he plays a bootlegger yeah. in like uh, I want to tell you it's like Nashville or something. And Jeb, yeah. but, he, but he's like uh, he he's in the the mountains and he's making moonshine, and mm-hmm. he, it's like the only movie he directed. But there's a really famous scene where. It's so cheaply done, and Bob Mitchum didn't care that they're like these two characters talking, and they shot part of it in a real location. And then when yeah. it cuts to the reverse, it's literally yeah. a dude in front of a painted backdrop of a tree in a park. And really? You, yeah, and you watch it, and you're like, oh, but then you're like, ah, oh, whatever, and you it's just fucking, keep, it's a movie. Yeah, it's a movie. Oh man, I mean, that's a whole thing, and we'll we'll loop around. So speaking of that, mm-hmm. the Star Trek two, Star Trek two, Wrath the Con. Yeah, well, but you know, you, we were talking earlier when we were talking about um, Alien uh-huh. about how sci-fi, sci-fi is the world of ideas. Yeah, and I think no franchise, franchise. Mm-hmm. Because I would say 2001 is the best sci-fi movie of all time, personally. But no franchise taps into that like Star Trek, which has always Certainly. been about ideas. And um, Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan... Now, I haven't seen all the Star Trek movies. Okay. And I think you may be a more of a Trekkie than I am. I've seen one, two... We prefer Trekkers. Or Trek, sorry. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't care. But, but I will say, just to lay this up, you know, and I know everyone knows this history... So Star Trek One came out, yeah. directed by Robert Wise, Sound mm-hmm. and Music, West West Side Story. I'm actually a fan of Star Trek One. I, I know I, I think I think it's too long. I don't know that the payoff is worth all that build up. I think there I think it's a slow movie, to be sure. Sure. But I think the Voyager Vigor thing, I find personally like I'm gratified. I think that's a cool plot point, to be honest. I haven't seen that movie in so long because I think that when I watched it the first time, I fell asleep. Right. It's slow. And then maybe fell asleep two more times trying to finish it over the next couple nights, and I never revisited it. I'd be curious to see it again, but it it is slow, despite a kind of a cool plot point. Yeah. Kind of a cool premise. Well, and, and so the, 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 I just want to go on the record as saying I actually enjoy Star Trek 1. It would also be a movie if you put it on. I'd watch mm-hmm. it again. However, having seen, uh, I will just say I've seen 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. Mm-hmm. Didn't see Undiscovered Country, which I want to talk about a little bit. Um, didn't see any of the Patrick Stewarts, which I, would, I need to. Um, and then saw the two Abrams, but didn't see the Ugh. third uh, one that was directed by Justin Lin, I think, that just came out a little bit ago. Of all of the ones I've seen, mm-hmm. Star Trek Two 
Heads and Tails is the best one. Yeah. For me. What do you think? I remember liking the first Next Generation one. I think it's... Oh, I don't remember what it's called, but I haven't seen it since... Generation, right? Generations? Because Kurt's no, the one. No, not the one that overlapped. The one, the first pure Next Generation one with Kirk and Picard. And I don't remember what it's called. Um, Is the Borg in it? Oh, shoot. I feel like it's a time travel one. Mm. And I feel like... Oh, what's the name of the actor? The Scottish actor who was in Babe. Oh, James Cromwell. James Cromwell was in it. Mm. Now, I can't remember what it's called. I liked it, but I liked it. I both liked it in 96 or 97 and last saw it in 96 or 97. So that says that. Do you, would you take it over? Um, I'm going to look it up while we talk. Would you take it over Wrath of Khan? No, I don't think so. I'm just saying that was one that I liked. I mean, there's five and six are terrible. I barely remember them. Is Undiscovered Country not that great? I, I couldn't even tell you what happens in it. I mean, if someone was to give me a couple hints, I'd remember it, I guess, but... Here we go. Is that the one where they go... First to Contact. S- first Contact, yeah. Is Undiscovered Country the one where they go to the center of the universe and meet God? No, that's that's five. That's that's Final Frontier. That's the worst one. That is... Yeah, yeah that might be the worst. I'm sorry to Mr. Shatner. <laughs> Mr. Shatner directed it, but... Uh, oh, there you go. The um, No, Final Frontier I've never seen, but it's the one where like the Klingons are going to become part of the Federation, oh, and then yeah. there's a sabotage. It's, it's you know, it's 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 best that I remember. It, it's an entertaining movie, and nothing more, nothing less. I haven't seen it. It was directed by Nicholas Meyer. Oh. Um, yeah, who did Star Trek That's II right. with the Con. Um, but, yeah, what are you going to say? And Nicholas Meyer, who I read uh, when he got hired to direct... Star Trek 2 had never even really I don't even think seen an episode of the original series he had to give, be given he had to be briefed on the franchise but see this is the thing that I find so I want to throw this out because I listened to some Nicholas Meyer interviews uh-huh. only knew him as the Star Trek 2 Wrath of Khan director realized he was this author he directed a H.G. Wells picture yeah um, you know he's still working today uh, he's still dealt on tons of projects actually ended up doing the stories on a few other Star Trek pictures, but uh, he said something, which you probably heard too, that I loved, and and, and I think that great sci-fi, I love when I hear this. Uh-huh. So the story I heard, if I'm telling it right, was he was like, I don't know how to do this movie, and like, you know, I'm a, I'm a New York author, and I'm in a Star Trek movie. And then he was like, but you know, I love the novels about the Napoleonic Wars, and the captains that fight the Napoleonic Wars on the ships. Uh-huh. And he was like, that's what I'm going to do. This is about a captain who this is the last time he can go out and fight a Napoleonic War. And he's going to fight this pirate that like he's never vanquished. And it's going to just invigorate him again. And when you see Star Trek too, it's really a, sense. It's a movie about a boat captain fighting like the pirate that he never totally vanquished. That makes total sense. So much down to one of the things I don't like about Star Trek Two is all the ridiculous, you know, old timey naval shit that's in it. And right. So much their uniforms, so much so that um, the uh, what's that whistle they do? The sort of call to. You know oh, I, I about? just saw it a few weeks ago. Yeah. Do they do that? They do. Oh. Uh, oh, you mean taps? Do they play taps? They don't play taps. There's a. There's a 
It's like Some a sort of, boatswain's call. Yes, that's what it is. Oh, okay. And you're like, oh, this seems dumb. Huh. But you know, it is interesting that the, what's considered the best Star Trek movie is from a total outsider because he wasn't a slave to the Star Trek canon and the Star Trek mystique. And, and he wasn't doing fan servicing. Yeah. Well, there, yeah. And I'm sure you know all this and our mm-hmm. audience knows it, so I don't want to belabor people with stories already know, but... You know, it's weird how sometimes the great movies, they're great because people get put on them and they inherit things they have to do. And then they figure out these really clever ways yeah. to do that. And so I know you know the story and our audience knows the story. I'll tell it real quickly. But like supposedly they had six scripts and Nicholas Meyer came on and the the producer said, you know, I don't even know if you want to do this kid because in 12 days, like we've already hired Lucasfilm. ILM is doing the effects. we got to have a script in 12 days. And Meyer said, uh, I'll write it. Just give me the scripts. And I'm just going to take what I like from this one. And it was yeah. like, one was about the Genesis Project. One was about Khan. One was where Kirk had a kid. And he was like, he just took them. But but the the thing was, the only way they could get Nimoy on was to tell him that they were going to kill him off. Right. Because Nimoy just did not want to do another Star Trek movie. And I think... Apparently that- he didn't like money. <laughs> Well, and then he did. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> then he, he didn't want anything to do with Star Trek until he wanted to direct one or two of them. Then it was all about Star Trek. Yeah, and he mellowed. Or, yeah. But but it's but but the thing I think that makes Star Trek two also really good is in a fan service movie. Yeah. And I guess people would take issue maybe because they do this in, in Star Wars all the time. But like when Spock dies, you're like, whoa, you know, and it's a sacrifice. Yeah, and and it's this probably the most emotionally wrenching moment in the Star Trek franchise because really it's a love story between Kirk and Spock. I mean, in some ways, in some ways, yeah. Kirk and Spock. I mean, you know, Kirk has a wife and a kid, and they just like show up, and he's like, "Oh, I got a wife, I got a kid." Well, not my wife, an old girlfriend, right? Old girlfriend, yeah. right? They had to part ways. Yeah, he was off uh, exploring the galaxy. What would you do if an old girlfriend showed up and you had a twenty-three-year-old son? I don't know. I'd question. hope he was cool. <laughs> <laughs> what, would, what would that Otherwise, be? Otherwise, I'd be really bummed. <laughs> but who's this dork? Um, I don't know. It's a good question. But <laughs> before we go down that rabbit hole, yeah. yeah. Well, it's exactly what you're saying. So. All these other Star Trek movies are just, they are, they're fan service. They're like, a, you know, they're, they're, oh, this is going to be great because everyone's going to, you know, everyone's going to bring baggage to the table and they're going to understand why this plot's interesting. This is a guy who said, no, I don't know what this is about. I don't know anything about Star Trek. Sure, I, I, I'm sure he must know who Kirk and Spock were and that's about it. Yeah, and he's not dumb. He's not dumb. He's going to get up to speed. But he... W- sought out to make a movie that was interesting with or without these characters. Right. Which is, maybe, you know, we'd have to think about all Star Trek movies, but it might be the only movie that if you just made it non-Star Trek and just made it about a space captain and an old nemesis, might still work. Well, and the other thing, too, and I'm I'm just riffing on on the thing I said earlier, having seen it in the theaters just a month ago when Uh we played it, you know, the, the third act is essentially a naval battle. I mean, it's essentially Khan is in a ship and Kirk is in a ship 
and they're circling each other. And, you know, it's funny. We live in a period now in 2018 where I don't know that too many new folks are being really obsessed with naval battles. Right. But naval battles are pretty fascinating um, in terms of war and and how you fight a naval battle because of what it takes to ride a ship and turn a ship mm-hmm. and when you're exposing your flank and all that stuff. And Kirk does this thing where they go into the, like, nebula cloud. Yeah. And then suddenly, like, but then Khan does this thing where he's like, F it. I'm going to blow this thing up, right? I got the ace hole. I got the Genesis device. Yeah. Um, and they and the thing is they can't go warp speed, right? So then Spock has to go in and like fix yes. the engine. Um, and uh, But when you watch it, the movie slows down for this naval battle between two minds. And I think this goes to this thing why I think Star Trek II works really well and I just want to put it to you. Khan and Kirk, when you think about it, their names both begin with K. Yeah. He's doing this thing of doppelganger where Kirk is a brilliant captain and he takes risks. Khan is a brilliant, I mean, it's like a Superman, yeah. um, but he takes risks. Like Khan could have just taken, like even one of his, his like village people, people yeah. are like, let's just take the ship and go like F Kirk. And he's like, no. You know. Well, he's, at Ka- he's Ahab. He's Captain Ahab. Yeah, I'm like, I've yeah. got to kill. God. I think he actually quotes Ahab, if, I, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. At the end, right? Yeah. With well, my with, final breath. So, well, here's the thing. I don't know if you know this, but they couldn't get Ricardo Montalban and the Star Trek cast at the same time. Because he was doing Fantasy Island. Yeah, so, there's, so they... And this is one of the, the... I think one of the things that could have put the film over the top. I and mean, when you think about it, you, you don't realize that when you watch a movie, but... They never meet face to face, right? And I think that is a failing of the movie. Mm. Uh, um, for the build up, you want to see them face to face. They just see each other on monitors. This is a production issue that they ran into, and you don't notice it when you're watching. It's sort of after the fact. But that being said, it does slow down in the third act. They kind of make up for it the fact that like Kirk outsmarts him with his twenty fourth or twenty third century thinking, right? Two D versus three D, but. It's. I lost my train of thought there. Well, you, it, it sounds it, it, like you have some misgivings, some hesitations yeah. about. Star I feel Trek like there. when I so when I watched it, and because we haven't really we've talked about the the big things of the movie, I haven't talked about the movie and nuts and bolts. It starts off great. This is you know we, we this is a these are characters we saw, fifteen years ago on TV. Right. We saw them in a movie that was successful, but not over the top successful. In fact. You know, they actually kicked uh, Roddenberry uh, to the curb to a certain extent. They took him out of, they removed creative control. Right. And they thought that he was the problem with Star Trek One. So they took it away from him. Who knows what the movie would have been with him in charge. Have you heard that story? Can I tell you real quick? Sure. And I want to do, this I'll tell real quickly because I, so Roddenberry pitched Star Trek Two, uh-huh. and his pitch was the Klingons discover that they can rule the universe if they go back to one moment in time and they change that one moment in time. And that one moment in time is the JFK assassination. And they go back to make sure that JFK can live. And then the Star Trek crew goes back to 1963 and Spock is the man on the grassy knoll who kills JFK (laughs) so that the uh, Klingons don't rule the universe. And I guess Paramount read that like treatment and was like, no. It's funny on I I didn't know that I knew it was about JFK but I didn't know uh, that specific about Spock. On one hand, you're like this is great sort of 
late seventies, early eighties commentary on and, and just a twist of you know a, a take on a a moment that really shook America. On the other hand, it doesn't sound like Star Trek. I was about to say that sounds like a really great Twilight Zone movie. Right. Yeah. But I do think the idea of Spock on the on the grassy knoll though kind is of kind offensive. of great. <laughs> no, I think it's great. <laughs> but I got being said like. I don't see how that would just be how that would just wouldn't become silly, right? Spock and Kirk running around nineteen sixty three Dallas or whatever, right? Um, well, and so so, but it's to your point. So they took yeah. them off. Nicholas Meyer rewrote the story, yeah. and you were and then your misgivings about the movie. So I think it starts off, starts dynamite. It starts dynamite, and we got you know Admiral Kirk. Although I gotta be honest, the opening with Christy Alley and they do the Kobayashi Maru, and it, it kind of strange you know credulity because <laughs> I know it's supposed to be a set on a, a star base but they got explosions going off and she's doing it with Spock and Bones and Sulu I think is there and 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 Uhura and, and they're all acting as if they're dead you're just like oh this is ridiculous that being said the whole thing with with Kirk and 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 he's He's been promo- it's like that age old thing where he should be happy with his promotion, but of course he's not, right? Because you know he's 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 just withering away, and he gets the glasses as a present, doesn't even know what they are. There's all this stuff about age, and then of course he gets back in the saddle by necessity because he's happens to be on the ship when they need him. But he's been made a desk jockey. Yeah, it's it's the you know it's the death of uh, you know the death of you know the cowboy or something like that, right? And so it starts off great and cons great and checkoffs on the planet and they get the things in the ears and oh. it's really like it's still what is this thirty five years later it's it's a little hard to watch yeah I mean that is that's great stuff and 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 Ricardo Montalban's acting his balls off and on one hand it's totally cheesy on the other hand it's it, what holds it's the glue that holds the movie together he's so ridiculous but so captivating right and he's putting on a clinic <laughs> but then like. You know, Kirk and the kid, and that doesn't, that's, it's weird, it's not... The kid's really... got, like, a tennis sweater. Yeah, that's the <laughs> thing, too, everyone's... And also, one of the other scientists doesn't have sleeves on his shirt, and he's got, like, you know, they like, shown off his arms, you're like, what kind of space station is this? But, uh, like, that's not fully realized or fleshed out or explored, and then, like, his old girlfriend, and then, you're right, then it just gets into this sort of, like, space naval battle, and I... I think what holds the second half of the movie together is Khan. Well, but, but this is the... So the thing to me that's really interesting that I think great movies do, mm-hmm. and it goes back to Shakespeare, is... And Kurosawa does it brilliantly. Um, is your villain needs to be, in his own way, completely justified in his logic... And a shadow character of your hero. Right. To the point where you realize that what separates your hero from your villain are things that are in some ways fairly fragile. That your hero could be the villain in different circumstances and the villain could be the hero. And then it's this Mm -hmm. battle of wills. And I think it's often better when your villain is... I always think it's better when your hero is below the villain. And your hero starting yeah. from a, a, a subordinate position of you're like, how is this hero going to beat this villain? This villain's just too good. Right. You know, I think that's always better. It, it always seems to work. Like you and I love Indiana Jones and Indiana Jones is always starting behind the eight ball. 
you know, I mean, he always like taking on the Nazis. <laughs> and he's always just like, okay, <laughs> I yeah. guess I'll figure this out. Um, but I think, I think in Star Trek 2, too, you get Kirk and Khan. And what you're saying is when you talk about like a clinic, yeah. I mean, when you talk about two folks that love to chew scenery, I mean, you got Shatner oh. and Montauban. Shatner's ridiculous. And, and, and I mean, not to mention the rest of them, Bones. And then James Doohan's just doing his thing, and he's got the weird nephew who dies. And there's like I don't know, you, I don't think you saw it in the theatrical, but there's some extra stuff. I think the only DVD right now is a director's cut that's got extra stuff of his nephew that's just awful. Oh really? Oh no, we didn't see that. We uh, saw the theatrical. You're better off for it, but still, there's that scene where like they get attacked by Khan. Do they and- eat haggis and? <laughs> What, some Robert Burns poetry? No, but anyway, so I'll tell you in a second, but yeah. remember there's a scene, they get attacked, and he's like, damage report, and then, like, you know, he goes to leave the bridge, and then James Doohan's then holding, like, this crewman. Right, yeah. And you're both like, aww. That, so that's, that's, that's supposed to be Scotty's nephew. Oh. That not really uh, No, that's uh, not really clear in the movie. But, like, there's a scene where Kirk is doing an inspection. He goes and inspects the, um, the, uh, the, the engineering, and this one ensign or whatever sort of almost like talks back to him. He's like, "Sir, this is a fine ship, and I mean, if you can't see it yourself, you don't know you, you know your elbow from a you know space creature." You know, he says some space creature was supposed to laugh, right? And it's it's like at a happy days or something, and and he's like, and that's and and he goes over to uh, you know Sky. He's like, "What's this guy's?" He's like, "Oh, it's my uh, my sister's kid." You know, he's real gung-ho or whatever. Huh. So they they wrote in Scotty's nephew and then gets killed. And we're supposed to be like, oh, oh, Scotty's nephew got killed. Like if Scrooge McDuck lost Huey. Yeah. (laughs) I'd be way more torn up if Scrooge McDuck lost Huey than Scotty losing his annoying nephew who talked back to the captain. You just don't do that. Right. Well, well, that's the funny thing is that I think in many ways... Star Trek II shows its age. It is a movie from 1982. Complete with that thing where they talk about the Genesis device and it's like the first prolonged CGI effect where they show the the planet and stuff. Um, And there's certainly certainly a lot that... like Also, there's a scene in the movie where Kirstie Alley shows up in like a slinky silk negligee and in the elevator and she's like... And she's just talking to Kirk and you're like, oh, Kirstie Alley... They just it's got her long hair, and then Bones makes a mention of it. Yeah, and and you're like, oh, they, you know, they made you do this scene, <laughs> <laughs> and but for why? It's not like she's, yeah, the the scene does not move the plot forward. Yeah, and it's not like her. Other than Kirk's ever like sexy, and also Kirk's like, I think I'd like to bone her, but I won't. That's like literally the point of that scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it pays off in no way. Right, um, and and but. You know, in this weird way that movies that work, work. Uh-huh. You know, it's funny because I think most of us, if we're being brutal and honest, right? No bullshit. No, I'm going to just like defend this movie because I'm going to defend this movie. If we have these moments of humility where it's like, okay, enough bullshit. Work or doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Star Trek II works. Sure. And it works, I think... Because it's the story of a captain who comes alive again. 
Yeah. And, and he, he comes back and he's like, you know, it's like Color of Money. I mean, it's literally, you could show Color of Money in Star Trek too. It's literally like, uh, I'm back. Well, yeah. So much so that besides Spock, none of the other Star Trek characters have anything to do in the movie. Oh, yeah, Sky yeah. doesn't have anything to do. That's why they, I assume why they gave him a nephew to have one emotional scene. Uhura's got nothing to do. Sulu's got nothing to do. Chekhov does have something to do, but strictly plot has nothing to do with Chekhov, the character. Right. Um, Bones is just there to be... Bones. Yeah, and, and also just to comment on Kirk. And then, I don't even know if Spock has that much to do until the end. I mean, it really is a movie about Kirk and Khan. Right. So much so that they could have replaced everyone else and no one would give a shit. Right. I And, and I... It's funny, you... you you know, hmm. who can we put? <laughs> We're gonna have Ricardo Montalban chewing up the scenery, and he won't be the most ridiculous actor in the movie because <laughs> <laughs> we still got Shatner. Yeah, but that's Shatner's that Shatner's shining moment. I mean, yeah. you know, the, the okay. So I, I, it's funny. I, I wonder how William Shatner feels being this strange icon of our generation because Shatner almost means something yeah. to like our generation that I don't, I think even William Shatner must be a bit confused by. But um, but it's also a testament to him that, I mean, you know, here's a guy who's been acting for 50 plus years and he's relevant in his way to, to each successive generation. So, you know, Bill Shatner has nothing to apologize about anything. But that Shatner acting, um, it never was a better fit than in Star Trek 2. I mean, I find Shatner a lot of fun yeah. in Star Trek 2. I think it I think it's William Shatner's I mean, would you is there another time where he was better, more enjoyable, where it was a better fit? That that's a tough one. I haven't seen the other movies in so long. The but, TV shows might be a different question. Yeah. He's got some f- I uh I feel like he's got a couple of good scenes in Star Trek Three, but it's been a long time. Yeah, because that when he's got another nemesis to cling on. I can't remember the whole plot. I can't. Kills a guy in a fun way. I will say that. Um, Draws him a hot bath. Lufas him to death. No, you may right. It's it's two leads chewing up the scenery, and that's fun to watch. It is fun to watch. Yeah, yeah. You know, Connery's like, this is City Alpha 6. <laughs> <laughs> or City Alpha 5, whatever. And we didn't even mention the fact that he yells Khan. <laughs> which is ridiculous. Ridiculously awesome. Or just ridiculous. <laughs> depending on the way you see it. And what I would say about Shadow, and I just want to throw this to you, is... Okay. Oh, you want to talk about Shadow of a Doubt? I would. Oh, okay. Is that okay? Yeah, that's fine. All right. Sorry, man. Sorry to be a downer. Um, <laughs> sorry to harsh your buzz, man. Um, the, um, to me, Shadow actually does this very weird thing. They're both named Charlie. They're doppelgangers. He's a killer. In the end, she kills him, so she becomes a killer. She has it in her to kill. He has killed. They're both exceptional in comparison to everything around them. She is exceptional Mm -hmm. 
but has some kind of moral compass in the traditional sense. Killing is bad. He is exceptional, doesn't have that moral compass, but has a view of the world that's very hard to refute, which is that, I mean, there's that line where he says, the world is hell. What does it matter what we do in it? Which is about the most badass thing a villain can say to a good person to be like, you know it's hell, I know it's hell, that I kill people in the grand scheme of the universe has no import whatsoever. Well, this is like Harry Lyme in The Third Man. Harry Lyme, right? And I think that when you're somebody who does believe in ethics and morality and some kind of karmic, cosmic, transcendent something, which I do, that is the toughest argument to face. Because I think the strongest argument atheists can put to believers is... Are you seeing things as they really are? Or are you seeing them as you want to see them? And Uncle Charlie, Joseph Cotton, arguably sees things as they really are. And says to Charlie, all this shit about humans killing humans and whatever, bullshit. Humans kill humans. That's a given. I just see through it. And I'm getting mine. You're hung up with Americana and religion and the church and what everybody has told you. But that's your thing. You're hung up with systems. I'm not hung up by systems. But the thing about the movie that I love is that Charlie, Uncle Charlie, he's like at the end of his rope and he says it. Whether you think that what I just said is a fiction or there's bearing to it, Uncle Charlie can't exist in the world. He's at the end of his rope, even if he's seeing too clearly. Niece Charlie, Teresa Wright, is terrified because she's as intelligent as Uncle Charlie. And they have a psychic bond. And they can see through the illusion, but she refuses to go where Uncle Charlie goes. So they make a point a couple times in the movie of emphasizing that... Charlie says to her uncle, we are the same person, or or uncle says to Charlie, we are the same person. Right. Make that very clear, right? So Charlie, uh, Uncle Charlie, Joseph Cotton. Yeah. Yes, but he also has an insanity in him because he he has this mania, this fixation about widows who are living off of the riches that their husbands have made, and he thinks that it's disgusting and that they need to be killed. So it's not a rational person. He's not a rational person. He right. sees the world in a like ants. He's or in, fair enough. He's insane. Yeah. He has a When com- it comes to widows. He and and it's that's that's true and yeah. that's emphasized. At the end he's going to kill that poor woman. Yeah. And you see him kind of flirting with her and he identifies her as a widow. She's wearing a veil and he's drawn to her immediately at the bank. And he's like, "Oh, tell me more about you, Miss Green." <laughs> I'm Mrs. Green, actually. Oh, really? It's very... It's great, yeah. But for Charlie, the girl, the teenage girl, she is now entering the world of adults for the first time. And so she, the scales are falling from her eyes, and she has to make sense of how the, wor- how the world is as it really is. Right. And she's leaving her friends behind, and she's growing up too fast, not too fast. She's going up at a faster rate than her friends are. Poor Catherine, her <laughs> friend. 
With all those weird looks. Yeah, like Hitch, yeah, Hitchcock was just like, I need you to look him up and down like you just want to jump him. Yeah. And I need to do that eight times in the movie. She's a girl. Charlie is an adult. Right. And that's the difference, is that Charlie is able to look at adults as an adult would. And Catherine is still like, I don't know what I'm dealing with in here at all. I don't know if that's it, though. You don't think so? No, I think Catherine... I, I, would, I, would, I would frame it just a little differently. Sure. I think Catherine um, is adult in that, like all of us, she has sexuality. Mm-hmm. And, and she, you know, these, these men are here, and they're in their 20s, and she is 17 or 16. Mm-hmm. And she's seeing them through the prism of romantic sexuality. And could you find me attractive? Okay. Whereas I think that what Charlie is saying is I think Charlie is piercing beyond that veil. You know, I I think Charlie and Uncle Charlie, I think this is made clear in the film. No one else pierces the veil, not even the the FBI dude. Um, But Charlie and Uncle, niece Charlie and Uncle Charlie are having a totally different conversation. Yeah. Than everybody else in the film. I agree. Yeah. And and niece Charlie and Uncle Charlie are having a conversation essentially about the worth or non-worth of humanity. And the way that the world really works. The way the world really works. And I think that Uncle Charlie is putting forth acknowledging his mania, which I think is valid. Uncle Charlie is putting forth this still unsettling proposal. That if we really looked at the world the way it is, we're just animals. And animals are impulsive and petty and stupid. And animals deserve to be slaughtered. And niece Charlie, as anybody of any species, with some kind of, I think there's worth here even if I can't define it, reacts in horror that no, there, therein lies the end of what we've built. And Uncle Charlie's saying, what we've built is built on illusion. And niece Charlie's saying, illusion or not, I affirm it. Yeah. That's, I think, the central argument of Shadow of the Doubt. Now, why do you think... I don't think this is a, a, a um, stereotypical Hitchcock movie. Right. There isn't a huge set piece... The stakes are sort of small, in a sense, because he might be the killer. There might be another person who's the killer. He might get caught. He might not. It's not as if everything is pointing at him. There's always a way out. Right. And Charlie is the niece. Charlie is is kind of the focal point of this whole thing. She can blow it up, and she chooses not to. She decides to let Uncle Charlie go, or makes the decision that she won't tell the cops about him, and he can get away but maybe he'll get caught, but it won't be. She could also say he's definitely the killer to the cops. Right. But she doesn't. Yeah. So going back to rear window. <laughs> so, so uh, what did you think? Of rear window? Yeah. The, yeah. What were you, what was your takeaway watching it this week? I thought it was very exciting. I, I really, I really did like it. I know everybody talks about, oh, it's about Boreism. Of course it's about voyeurism. It's, I mean, we're all voyeurs. Well, I think that's why it's so successful. Yeah, yeah, I mean, like... Because I think it taps into something we don't like to talk about, but we all on yeah. different levels do every day. Yeah, definitely. 
Well, I don't know if you ever, you know, there's a question I've always been really fascinated by, and I'll ask you first and we'll talk about it. And, and And I don't know if I'm getting it right, but I know the, I'm getting the question right, but the significance we'll have to talk about. The question is, if you could uh, get one of these wishes, which one would it be? Either the power of flight, you could fly, or the power yeah. to be invisible. Oh, fly. And fly, absolutely. That was yeah. like a no-brainer for me. And they were saying that, that – but, but for you and I, and, it, and we're friends, but they were saying, I think, and I'll have to look this up, but if you wish for flight – it tends to mean that you're a dreamer and yeah. you're not very realistic <laughs> and you don't really think through like if, if you and I had the power of flight, you yeah. know, like at some point people would see us and then the government yeah. would get freaked out. And How about both of them at the same time? Well, no, that, that wasn't an option. <laughs> um, That's not an option. I, under Article B of the statute, <laughs> I don't know. But, but they were saying if you wish for invisibility – um, you're a very practical person because it's a it's a, a talent that you could use, but yeah. you're not. It was, and I want to say this right, but it, it if you wish for invisibility, you're you can deal a little easier with the moral implications of what that means. You you're not bothered by it. So so they deal and then like get out of there. They just see the money going or like yeah. That. They were just saying that that if you wish for invisibility. You're, you may not be thinking through the moral implications, and okay. if, and if you th- if you wish for flight, you're not necessarily thinking about the practical implications. So I guess it's just something about the difference between a dreamer and maybe a real pragmatist. And it was just really interesting, but I'd have to look it up. I remember one time uh, I was living in Centerville. This is like 16 years ago, maybe maybe even longer because I lived in Centerville twice, and I remember I was in my room. It was late at night, and I was just, I could not get to sleep. It was one of those nights where I knew I had to get up in the morning and go to work, and I was like, damn, why can't I get to sleep? And I was so bored, and I was like, uh. And I heard this woman, like, like moan in pleasure, mm. like somebody was having sex. I immediately sat up straight. <laughs> And I went to the window, and I was like, what's that? What's that? And then I never heard it again. It was just like this one-time thing. And I was like, oh. Dude, it was a succubus. It was a succubus. <laughs> and she came to my door, and she said, Brian, you give me $2. I make you a Really? So anyway. That's all the succubus charge? <laughs> Not, she doesn't want your soul or anything? Or to do her bidding in the world of the living? She just wants 2 bucks. It was 2 bucks. <laughs> The succubus. That's two bucks. I mean, that's really. Give me two bucks. <laughs> I'm gonna suck your dog. <laughs> you can say whatever you want, dog. I'll edit it and I'll, I'll give it to you before we post it, so you can approve. <laughs> don't, don't don't censor. You know, talking about sex because this is important because that's the ultimate. That's yeah. like because really, no, I don't want to watch some somebody kill someone. I don't want to see that. In, yeah. in, in a way, what Rear Window is, and the irony, of course, is he doesn't even see it. He just hears it in the movie. He's, like, sleeping, and he hears the scream. Um, that's how he starts to, like, whoa, what happened? But he is looking in all the other windows for sure, and he's looking in, like, Miss Lonely Heart's window, and he looks yeah. into the newly. So he does look. And I think the newlyweds window, because I think hearing people have sex or catching people have sex is, like, the three sevens on the slot machine of voyeurism. <laughs> 
You know what I mean? Like, and yeah. and uh, when I yeah, totally, and when I was at USC, yeah. I lived in a two up two down building um, that you may have even come to at some point. I was there forever, but it was yeah. two, two up two down. And the family downstairs was a Mexican family, the Flores family, and I became really good friends with them still to this day. And the dad, Jesus Flores, would sell uh, shrimp cocktails out of his van, ceviche cocktails, and it was delicious. Oh. I would buy that shit all the time. And then oh, like okay. a hard tortilla shell and marisco, so it was delicious. So when I would come home, he would often be coming home and we'd, we'd talk and he'd allow me to practice my Spanish with him and, you know, Señor Jesus, como esta, que pasó, all that. Well, we're talking outside one day, and the same thing. We were surrounded by two apartment buildings. One was a college building. One was uh, just a residential building. And yeah. we hear just, like, moaning and pleasure. And not only moaning and pleasure, but, like, like she, this girl's having toastios. And she's <laughs> – I mean, like, like it, and, 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 and it was the college building, so they were probably in their, you know, teens or 20s. And, and just for the context of the story, I think I'm, like – 25 at the time, 24. And yeah, so yeah. Senior Jesus and I were talking and, you know, we, at first we try to be like, not acknowledge it, you know, <laughs> and it just keeps going and, and it gets louder. And I mean, it's just like, I'm going to have to perform this a little for you. Forgive me. But I mean, like, it's literally like, just, she's just like, Oh my God. Oh yeah. Oh, hit it. Oh, Oh yeah. Hit it. Oh, you know, yeah. and like, and then Senior Jesus and I are listening and we stop and he looks at me and in Spanish, she goes, Goyo. Este es un sonido muy bonito. It's like, Craig, this, this is a beautiful sound. And I was totally with him. I was like, that is a beautiful sound. And then he and I were just like, this is beautiful. The sound of lovemaking. This is great. I want to have a cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> that would be really nerdy if we came to blows over movies. Peck and Paul almost came to blows. I mean, that was with a porter, though. Over, About what? Uh, I think uh, in at the premiere of the wild bunch so, oh really yeah what the did lobby. the reporter say i i think he was talking shit uh-huh. it's too violent peck and paul was a weird cat though yeah i mean the the i was talking to another buddy about this and i think this deserves I, I, first off i i i really like sam peck and paul and i am a huge fan of Wild Bunch and Straw Dogs. Mm-hmm. So I want to just go on the record, like, I'm a huge fan. Yeah. And, I'm, and I really like Getaway and um, The Ballad of Cable Hogue and Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Yeah. Um, I like all of them. Even even uh, Ride the High Country. Not Ride, that's... Uh, that no, was him. It's yeah. okay, Ride the High Country. That was his first movie. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and even uh, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. Yeah. I really enjoy it. Um, but... With Peckinpah, I never understood the thing he had with, like, the girlfriend of the lead getting boned by another dude. <laughs> does it happen a lot? Or we... No, I guess it does. There's, a, there's cuckolding in every movie of his where... Uh, not every, but, like, Straw Dogs is the yeah. biggest example. Where um, Hoffman is off shooting yeah. pigeons or something. And his wife gets raped slash kind of enjoys it from the dude in town. And you feel like, what is this scene? And then... Alfredo Garcia, there's a rape scene. And then she gets killed. Does she get killed? Yeah, it's like really weird. But but it's... But the weird thing is it's... It's not filmed in a way where you're supposed to be appalled by it. 
it's filmed it's, in a yeah. way where you're supposed to get off on it. And the getaway, uh, is it Sally Struthers? Yes. Struthers has a husband, uh-huh. and then he gets tied up, and then she's boning the outlaw dude in a shot I've never uh-huh. been able to forget, where I was like, what is this? And he has it in, like, too many movies. You're right. For it not to be a thing of his. Yes, and 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 it's confusing because what you're seeing doesn't compute with the way it's shot. Yeah. And so it's confusing to the audience, especially confusing like to a young male, which is when I saw a lot of these movies. Anyway, what was your reaction watching Terminator 2 again? Terminator 1. Terminator 1, forgive me. Yeah, yeah we can talk about T2. But... Um, I hadn't seen it in a long time. And it's funny, you know, we, I keep saying this. I think you reach a certain age and, and you've... I keep finding this as I rewatch these movies. Some of these movies I haven't seen in 10, 15, 20 years. But... I've seen them five to ten times, and so just to, and then maybe it's a testament to movies that they imprinted themselves in you, because there are other movies I haven't seen in 10, 15 years, I couldn't remember anything about them. Right. But all these movies that we're talking about, especially The Terminator, and then when I rewatched T2 as well, I remembered them. As scenes started, I remembered how they were going to go, remember what was going to happen next, and it, it... two decades it doesn't matter they left that strong of an imprint uh, because I saw them enough times and so there was stuff I remember from Terminator crystal clear you know but there was other specific scenes and specific shots and sequences like when he when he attacks her in that nightclub I forgot what a dynamite scene that is and Cameron shot that so brilliantly even to the end where She's lying on the ground, and you've never seen another... He's not a human being, but another human actor walk up so coldly, so purposefully, to shoot her. And he shoots, he points at her, and he pulls the trigger, and it's a blank. And he just, no panic, just starts to go reload. And it's just, I mean, dynamite stuff. And the way that he set up scenes, and the way that he shot stuff to be edited together, I mean, you just knew... I had to think... If you saw it for the first time in 1984, is that when it came out? Or yeah, 84. Um, even if you weren't a filmmaking person, or you just knew you were in the hands of a master. And so Cameron has thought everything out. Well, yeah, that's the thing. When you watch a Cameron movie, especially when it's at Prime, every scene is so well thought out, like you said. We talked about it earlier. We talked about Aliens briefly. Every scene works on its own and sets up either the next scene or a future scene. And, and and the thing you talk about the truck, I mean, the reason it sure it's foreshadowing, but it's also why does this guy? What is this guy's a machine? He doesn't care if he runs over a truck. Totally a kid's like, truck. Totally. I mean, you could imagine if you a human assassin might not ruin might, the might kid's not truck. might not ruin it because it's just in our human nature to not run something over. You could be there to kill someone. And you might not run over a truck because you just stop right before it. It takes no extra brain power or effort. But this guy doesn't, it's, it doesn't even occur to him. He just, that's where he stopped, on top of a truck. It's funny. She does the Liberty Valance thing of print the legend. You know, when the legend becomes the truth, print the legend. Mm-hmm. Which is, if I tell everybody my mom will be destroyed, my family will be humiliated... We will be pariahs. Her father will lose the job Her at the bank. Her father will lose the job yeah. at the bank. 
we housed a killer. And it, it does not serve any practical purpose, this truth. So I'm going to let you go. Because she's smarter than everybody else. She is able to see this in the three dimensions. That this tough truth. Yeah. Um, but, interestingly, the script, or the filmmaker, gives her the out of, of Char- Uncle Charlie dying on the train. What would have happened if Uncle Charlie had killed that widow and went on killing? Yeah. I mean, how would we perceive niece Charlie's actions? In a way, as audience members... Really, she it was incumbent upon her to report him. Yes. For the greater good. For the greater good. Yeah. But she doesn't. No. So there's something interesting about that, too. And then the movie bails her out. <laughs> well, she's a teenager also. So right. you were able to say that she's conflicted. and Although, she she's 18 or 19, right? Yeah, high school, I think. That's the feeling I got. Yeah, somewhere in there. Yeah, yeah. senior in high school. But out of high school. She's not in school. Yeah, I guess that's true. It's like summer or something. Something like that. Um, yeah, or, or junior college. I don't know. Yeah, I don't remember either. Yeah, it's fascinating because her mother is um, just kind of trying to keep the family together. That's her only job. Her father is working at the bank in a, basically a menial labor job. He counts money. He takes checks, he gives up money, but is more obsessed with his, he has this weird friend, Herb. He has this great, that's one of the great characters for me. Herb is an incredible character. So they're not role models for her. Uncle Charlie is the only role model. And when he comes to town, before he comes to town, she's depressed. She's trying to figure out what to do. She spends time laying in bed thinking for hours. So that's really the only role model is this guy, Uncle Charlie. And then, um, when he is discovered to be a murderer, that's really completely destroys her world. And it made me think this would be a great double bill with The Fallen Idol, if you've seen The Fallen Idol. I have. Not in years, but I have. So good. You were talking about doing um, films from a child's point of view. Totally. No one would come to The Fallen Idol at midnight. Don't do it. But <laughs> that is a great... But it's a great movie. Oh, uh, it's so good. It's. I just saw it again recently... At uh, the Egyptian, and what what's the what's the the premise? Is he sees the adults doing something that he can't fully? It's a uh, process. English manor, upper class family, and the the son has a he looks up to the uh, the butler, the valet, whatever the the head of the household is his man, the head of the servants, whatever he would be, be. He really looks up to him, and has a special relationship with him. That man who is the butler. I don't know really what his title is. He has a extramarital affair with one mm. of the cooks, and then there is a crime that's committed, and the boy ends up being a witness for the police, and he has to deal with, do I sell out this guy that I love, or what happens? And then it turns out that it's all revealed, it's all okay, but his relationship is now destroyed because he sees him as imperfect, the fallen idol. Right. right? Yeah, it's fantastic. It's a fantastic movie. It would be really great to compare these two. I think it's the same idea of holding somebody up as my ideal, whether it's a romantic ideal or uh, in either one of these movies is it, is it a romantic ideal, but a life ideal. And then to find out that there is more to this person and the more is not good. 
Let me throw a curveball in here. Do it. Does Charlie become Agent Dale Cooper? Ah! Who is a person who has seen it, knows that they are good, but is willing to explore and get as much information as they can about the dark side of the world. Oh, dude, that's brilliant. (laughs) Do you like that? Oh, you know, and it, it almost goes back to the first thing we were saying about your wall of uh, photos <laughs> in your apartment, which is they're, they're in the end with all great stuff. There's something that is just unexplainable um, that, you know, whatever your talent is in life, mm-hmm. you have a feel for it. And you can explain to people and you can analyze it. And, and you're right. And you can say, here's how you do it. Yeah. But other people won't quite stick the landing or they won't quite, you know, I mean, it's just something you somehow understand the recipe. Yeah. And with the great filmmakers, there's somehow this weird balance between clarity and simplicity and collaboration and trust and respect. And they get it. And they're like, you know, I'm You're going to add this up, but I'm going to make this clear for you. Yeah. And, and, and I think that most of us, 99.9% of us, the, the non-Camerons, the non-Spielbergs, the non-Hitchcocks, the non-Kubricks, we try to explain too much. Or we try to explain too little. Yeah. We were talking about Antonioni. I think there's also the thing of, I'm not going to explain anything. Yeah. And that's bullshit. You know, I don't know where I am. Why are they doing this? I don't get any motivations. That's the point. No. <laughs> that's, a, that's a David Lynch film, Craig. No, Stevie. <laughs> Let's not go there. Stevie. You're not going to throw down the Lynch gun. Lynch is one of the masters. I don't know if our, our if anyone listening to The Terminator wants to listen to hear about David Lynch right now. Fair enough. I think that David Lynch goes even deeper in Twin Peaks of Return and says that it is always a state of balance and that the dark will never consume the light and the light will never consume the dark, but the dark and the light are somehow in some kind of cosmic dance of balance that is totally beyond our ken. And I also find that to be a very powerful statement that moves me tremendously. But maybe that's the great truth that Charlie finds. And I might be making this up. I'm going to be reading something into it that's not there. But that she succumbs to this relationship with a detective, which is not going to be fulfilling for her. No, he's kind of a dunce. He's kind of just a... He's a blank slate. Yeah, compared to her. Yeah. Or Uncle Charlie. Uncle Charlie, yeah. But she thinks, well, this is... This is a safe choice for me to make. I will not succumb to evil if I go into this relationship, which will not be great for me. I'm not going to get what I want out of life, but I will not become my uncle. That conversation, that last scene had in front of a church. Yeah. Oh, is that right? Yeah. In the park? No, no, they're in front of a church. They're doing the eulogy for Uncle Charlie inside. Oh, right, right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That conversation happens. Two institutions, marriage and the church. That's right. And he calls her over. He talks to Catherine and says, hey, can you go get Charlie for me? I don't want to talk to you. Can you get Charlie for me? I think the woman who I think the actress who plays Catherine is in the Lady Eve. Why is she? 
I think she is a woman on the cruise ship who is trying to flirt with Henry Fonda. Oh, no, she has the... Oh, the Sturges movie. Yeah, yeah. So how oh, old that, is... Yeah, that's the lady. How old is she there? I don't know. Must be the same. Must be within a few years, Yeah, right? 41. Yeah. 40. I think it's the same woman. I can't guarantee that. And it's neither here nor there. I don't. I That's don't. for the Preston Sturgis podcast. Yeah, right. It's but but no, but but it's it. it I, see now, I think you're getting at something. Okay. And and maybe this is where we wrap it up because because you know, ten thousand years of human history has not resolved this question. Maybe this is a tragedy for Charlie. This this whole story. Well, so so talking about rear window. <laughs> The window. Uh, the, before we... I, really, I thought it was more exciting of a movie than North by Northwest. I thought it was more exciting. Why was that? Yeah, we let's just transition. Why was that? Um, it was like... I agree with you, by the way. You could see James Stewart, and it wasn't until like halfway or a third of the way through the movie that he got his, uh, um, his lens out, the big lens that he put on one of his cameras and then he was looking through the camera because he had binoculars at first and then he had like the, the zoom lens. Yeah. So he's looking and like, he's seeing all these things play out and you got the beautiful woman who's a dancer off to his left is the, uh, is the couple. And like every time the guy goes to the window and he rolls it up and he has a cigarette the lady says, Charlie, or something like that, you know, right. whatever the guy's name is. And he goes, damn, i got to get back to pounding. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, dope. Like, the kids are like, what is that? And then, you know. Was she nagging him for anything? He's like, oh, i got to go well, back. It's funny what you're saying because um, I love I love North by Northwest. Uh, yeah. The thing, though, with North by Northwest is it's it's intentionally, I think, a little ridiculous. And so yeah. you you watch it, and it's just it's just pure fun, pure popcorn. Cary Grant is so suave. Eva Marie Saint is so beautiful. James yeah. Mason is so urbane. Uh, you know, all these crazy things happen. The story is ludicrous, but it's yeah. it's just so fun. But Rear Window could happen, and I think that Rear yeah. Rear Window, in a way, it, you are on the edge of your seat because it's not outside the realm of possibility that you yeah. could. Somebody in your apartment complex could kill someone, and then you're like, what do I do? And then if yeah. they become aware that you know, then you're screwed. He actually is trying to tell his friend that he was like a crew person on, on an airplane with. He's now a detective. He would come in and listen to James Stewart's story. Yeah, Wendell Corey. Yeah. And, um, and, he, and he like, you know, he's like brushing it off and whatever. You're nuts. Until it gets to be a crescendo, which I found extremely exciting when it comes up where like the massage therapist for James Stewart and Eva Marie Saint. Grace Kelly. uh, What's her name? Grace Kelly. Grace Kelly. Possibly the most beautiful woman ever in American cinema. (laughs) (laughs) She goes over the wall with the masseuse and they get in the house. And they look up in the dirt, and yeah. it all comes together. And then, like, uh, there was just such a great moment where you can see what James Stewart is seeing, and he's he's terrified because now someone he knows is over there, and now it's going to be a personal thing. He's not just some kind of bystander; 
he's involved. Right, totally. And, uh, like, um, he's trying to get his... I think he called the cops before she went over there. I'm not sure. Because remember, he, like... uh, Remember they call? Oh, because yeah, Miss, because um, the woman downstairs takes too many pills. Yeah, and she's going to commit suicide, so they call the cops initially to help her. Yeah, but somehow um, they get the cops to go up to the up. Like he tells his friend that something's going on. The friend, the detective. Yeah, and then I think he calls the police again, or he gets him to call his buddies and tells them to go over there and check it out. And then they go over there and check it out, and. um, Grace Kelly has his wife's wedding the, the ring, yeah. wife's ring on her, and she's going like this, like behind her back. Yeah, it's great, pointing to her finger. Ring. And you can see Raymond Burr's sight. He sees her ring, which is his wife's that he killed, that he was like going to sell because he's selling his, her jewelry. And then he looks straight over to where she looks like she's signaling it, you know? Yeah, yeah. And he sees James Stewart. He's like, shit. That's how Raymond Burr gets over there. You know, I've seen the movie. So Rear Window is my personal favorite Hitchcock. It's actually also in my top ten. And yeah. that that moment, I, I love Rear Window, that moment where yeah. she signals the ring and then Burr looks right into the camera, every yeah. single time the audience loses their shit. Yes. And yes. it's so great because you're like, that's being in the presence of a, a master movie maker. Because yeah. it's like the whole movie builds to that moment. And like you said, then you're like, oh, no, <laughs> you're screwed. <laughs> like, oh, shit. The jig is up. The jig is up. Yeah. Yeah. She's just like, and it's just almost hard to believe that someone looked like that. I, yeah, I remember thinking she's a good looking woman. She was 26. Yeah. Like, like the age of the character. And just when she's kissing James Stewart, you're so there and you can't get your mind around why James Stewart is always like, (laughs) you know, you're the most beautiful woman in the world. (laughs) Across the way is such a, you know, like, and she's like kissing him and you can hear, "Mm," and I'm like, oh, God. Well, that's the funny, you know, so the funny thing about the reason I love the movie, too, and it is it's so I think that great movies fire on so many different levels and yeah. none of them are preachy. That's when, you know, yeah. a movie's great. And yeah. so if you just want to watch Rear Window and have a blast, you yeah. can. But if you watch it enough and you get older, you realize the movie's also about Stewart's fear of commitment. And he's like yeah. looking into yeah. each window and he sees a married couple that's just married. Then he sees a couple that's been married for 30 years. And literally, the husband kills the wife. Yeah. And it's yeah. almost like Stuart. And then he looks and he sees, you know, uh, what what it could be if he never goes with anybody. Miss Lonely Hearts downstairs. He, oh, good point. Yeah, like he sees what could happen if, you know, maybe, you know, he sees um, the dancer and she flirts with a lot of guys. Maybe yeah. that's his fear about Grace Kelly. And yeah. so then he looks in the and there's the bachelor who's writing the song and he yeah. sees maybe that could be him if he's just a slave to his profession. And so it's almost like he's looking at his subconscious and every single thing that he's worried about or what could be. And then there's Grace Kelly. But what you said is it, which is like, eventually you're like, dude, just get over it. It's Grace Kelly. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Oh, my God. Oh, man. 
That's that's such a good point. I never thought of it like that. That's really cool. Charlie sees the balance and can't share it with many people. She's the only person she could share it with, ironically, is Uncle Charlie. Yeah. She can't share it with the FBI guy. He doesn't know. He doesn't get it. Yeah, in, in that sense. Yeah. But she has gained wisdom and she has survived and she is going to continue on in an affirmative way. And therein, and I think when you look at Twin Peaks, The Return, and, it, you know, it ended on a cliffhanger. Dale Cooper and Laura Palmer go to the house in the last scene. They are still on a quest to, res- to do something, even if it's a Mobius strip, yeah. even if it never resolves. And that choice of putting yourself on a path of... Of of whatever that is, and and this is where the you know, you know, this is where words end. We've come to the end of the road, and we could talk, but 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 we have. I I this is where words end, but the journey continues, and I believe in that journey. Charlie is given up, though. I don't know. I don't. Think she so. has surrendered. And become one of the regular people. The thing that I that that's so ironic and fascinating is that one of Schwarzenegger's greatest roles is where he isn't emoting, yeah. where he isn't trying to be human, uh, and weirdly he becomes. It's almost like what Kubrick pulled off in two thousand one. The machine is the magnetic center of the picture. You know, yes, right. Linda Hamilton and Michael Biehn are great. They're dynamite. They're dynamite. But really, you see that movie for Schwarzenegger. Yeah, he's he's the the he's not the protagonist. He's a star, though. Yeah, which is an interesting thing that Cameron does in in that movie and in T two. Usually, your protagonist is the star, but in both of those movies, I'd say the protagonist is Linda Hamilton and Ed Furlong. Yeah. Um. Yeah, but the star, but the star, it all revolves around in both of them. Actually, the villain in, in T two, it's everything revolves around. I mean, Robert Patrick's dynamite. Robert Patrick's dynamite, and the, the and 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 the uh, conception of that character and his portrayal. And so we only we we know we in T two we gauge where we are by where he is. Right. We think we get in the head, and then he shows up. And there's that, you know, the music that accompanies him every time. Um, but in The Terminator, you're you're right. We're, we're, we're eyes are locked on Schwarzenegger, and he has, you know, only a handful of lines. He walks around, like, a, you know, stiffly. He's got this terrible accent, really, when you think about it. And the funny thing, when you're watching T2, you realize that somehow his Austrian accent was perfect, and you maybe couldn't do with that many accents in the world it sounds robotic. When he speaks English, he sounds robotic. Right. And so... I never thought about that. Yeah. Because it's so weird that, If he had a French accent, he wouldn't come across (laughs) as a... I mean, not... Um, I love the fact that they worked in uh, the matchbook. I love the fact that it said R-O-T and Richard O. Thornhill. Right. Roger or Thornhill. And um, that was when he first met Eva Marie Saint on the train and he lit her cigarette cigarette from his own matchstick. Right. So he's like, 
the, the only way he can get a message down to her, she doesn't know he's in the room. Remember at the end? When yeah, yeah, yeah. When with that great house that supposedly is right behind Mount Rushmore. Yeah. Yeah. So like. <laughs> That's some uh, killer real estate. I don't know how that happened. I, I can't remember who tells James. I think it's James. I think it's one of his. Uh, Martin Landau is Martin the henchman. Yeah. The cro- like the, the side guy. He, he actually shoots James Mason with the blank that even where he's saying just shot Cary Grant with. Right. In the airport, I think. Yeah. The, well, like the like, tourist shop. No, it was like the, yeah, it's a tour, tour tourist restaurant below Mount Rushmore. Of the, of, the, of the Rushmore. And then James Mason's is like, he's stunned, but Martin Lando is like, it's a blank. And like, she just shot um, Roger Thornhill with the same thing, but he's alive and she's tra- traitorous. You know, she's traitorous. Right, she's right. She's caught. She doesn't know they know that. And she's sitting on the couch and she's like, I'm ready for my plane ride. And you know, it's like they're going to throw her out over 20,000 leagues under the sea. <laughs> That's a great James Mason. And James Mason. Hello. Yes, what's your name? But, uh, so. You know, also to Cameron, I don't, I feel like he didn't leave any meat on the bone. Like he didn't. He didn't leave anything no. on the like he figured out how to make every scene click in five ways. So to me, you get Schwarzenegger and Bean, mm-hmm. and there's an irony immediately, which is that Hamilton, Linda Hamilton, Sarah Connor thinks that Michael Bean is yeah. going to kill her, right? And he's trying to save her. We know that she yeah, she's running away. She's hiding from him from him until he saves her, right? And this is this great irony because you're like, you're screaming at the screen, which is something that movies do. Like, no, you need to talk to that dude. That dude's the only one who's going to save you. And Cameron just, he's not wasting anything. Right. And then he plays it the the opposite way in the second one where she's, when when Arnold shows up and she's, you know, of course it's right as she's finally escaping the mental institution. She's the right, you know, ducks have lined up in a row for her to like make her escape. That's when they show up. And again, now she's scared of him when she needs, then he's there to help her. And of course, right. she she does realize it when she sees the T-1000 walk through, you know, uh, bars. Uh, um, Which is, and yeah. I'm just going to throw this to you. you. You know, why is it that, I almost feel like the answer to it is it's just like, it's it's why when Keith Richards plays a guitar, it's fucking killer. Mm-hmm. And when other people play a guitar, it's not. It's just Keith Richards gets how to play a guitar. And yeah. it's just that, that's what it is. Why is it that Cameron, mm-hmm. when he does a plot point or he does a plant and a payoff or he does a scene, just works, just works. And then other people, you watch him do stuff. Clearly, they thought about it for years. You see yeah. these movies and you're like, I don't know. Uh, well, without specifics to go off of, what I would say is that a lot of times when people have thought about stuff for years, they don't. You know, it's it's that overthought, they, overthought, yeah. and then maybe it no longer fits in the in the movie, and they don't, can't kill their babies and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the other thing is is what I keep saying. You know, with Cameron, the plants they're not just plants; they also work in the scene. When he plants something for a payoff later, it also works in the scene in which it's a plant, which is how plants are supposed to work. Yeah. You're not supposed to... Re- I mean, look, if you're really, really savvy move to go over, you still spot him, but you don't mind it because 
they're not gratuitous to the scene they're in. They still play in, they still affect the scene, they still make that scene great. They just come back around, you know, half an hour later, 45 minutes later. Right. To, to, to. I mean, Cameron is like so good that in Aliens, I don't even think about it being people in alien no. suits. You totally buy it. Yeah. And, and, and it's. I think it's also like an alien. There's a scene where the guy, you know, the alien straightens up, and you're like, well, that's just a really tall, thin guy. And I did true. I think they found some like six foot ten guy who weighed like 165 pounds. Right. And sure, his proportions are odd, odd. but he's still human. And I think Cameron just was like, I'm never going to show them standing up. I'm going to show them in such weird movements. And I think he might have hired acrobats or something too. But he just. He doesn't give you the opportunity to see him as humans. He only shows him from various angles or in specific movements or hanging from a ceiling or shooting out of something that you you don't have any choice. You don't get the opportunity to see the humanity. Right. The human form is what I'm trying to say. Well, and, 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 and I mean, this But goes- it's something clearly that he thought of. It's not a mistake. It's not, it's not coincidence, you know. It's, he clearly conceived everything. That's how much thought he puts into yeah. it. Yeah, so... Uh- well, so Psycho. Let's let's go to the Mamma Jamma. Let's go to Psycho. That's the movie I just got done watching a couple of hours ago. How you processing? And I uh, I I just cannot. It's incomprehensible how a movie can come together in such a way that it breaks every kind of barrier. It breaks every kind of notion you had of like, oh, the music was good. Of course, the music was good. The characters, the story is phenomenal. The screenplay is tight. Everything goes to a beat, to a beat. And even when there's downtime, there's the birds over, <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> over, uh, uh, what's his name? Anthony Perkins, Norman Anthony Bates. Anthony Perkins. So the, there's, the, there's the birds looming and like, I'm about to get you. And the first thing he says when she takes a bite, he's, she, he says to her, you eat like a bird. Oh. He says that to her right away, and uh, the first bite she takes, and uh, um, it was so like oh, and then he's like a bird, and like when he bends over to see what the detective is seeing in the ledger, and it, it, there, there's a shot from underneath looking up at Anthony Perkins and his big Adam's apple, and the way he looks like a predatory bird. Hmm. And he's like, mm, mm, mm. he's like shooing on some candy or something like that. And he's like, is Adam's able to like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's, mm, mm. and it looks like, it looks like you're looking underneath at a bird. It looks like that. So Avenue Hitchcock must have been, wait, let's do a shot from beneath and off to the left. He looks like a bird. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know how they got the idea to do it, but it was so good. And they also did this in Rear Window. They, they they maybe have a new technique that they can use optically. Oh, you mean the kiss? Uh, no, I'm talking about uh, the flash of the ball. Oh yeah, the red. The red. Yeah. Which is what? Which is what? Uh, he that's his only defense. He knows it's so bright. He covers his own eyes. James Stewart does, and he shoots it, and he's got like about five or six of them. And he puts the next one in, and he cuts in, and there's this, this flash of red from, uh, um, um, what's his name? Raymond uh, Burr? 
Jimmy Raymond Burr. Yeah, Raymond Burr is like he's blinded for about three or four seconds each time, and it's the only thing he has to get. And then all everything else is going on down there in the courtyard, and he says he's up here, and then he throws him off. Of course, they get the guy, and you know they're about to shoot him, but then somebody comes into his room and. Then, and then they, they capture them. Right. But uh, it, I love those, those like red, red. And then like, you know, I think that was a technique where they just, they pushed the red uh, uh, color and blinded the audience to, to make them see what he was doing. Well, and you know, the, th- the thing with Hitchcock that I, I don't think anybody actually, not even Kubrick, and I love Kubrick, but... Uh, Nobody could take avant-garde chances and yeah. yet make a movie that a general audience would love yeah. so consistently. Now, I think Kubrick did it, and I think Kubrick probably did it the best of anybody in, like, Strange Love in 2001 and Shining yeah. and stuff. But but Hitchcock made, like, whatever, like 60 films or something, 50 or 60 yeah. movies. And in yeah. so many of them, he's taking these crazy chances and doing these things, and it's like he figured out a way— if I make it a murder mystery where yeah. you're really into the story, I yes. can take some nutty chances. And like in Psycho, I know everybody talks about it, but that movie's still jarring and brilliant where yes. it's like you're following her and then she's out of the story 30 minutes into it. And yeah. then you're like, yeah. where where the fuck is the story going to go now? Yeah. Yeah. And then he like buries the car in the swamp and you're like, the money, the money. That's all you're thinking <laughs> But like you, just, that's like what we think of today. And I remember this when I was a kid, when I was like eight or ten years old. I already knew he was his own mother. Right. I already knew that because because of my mom. Oh, you remember Psycho? He was his own mother. And I was like, <laughs> What are you talking about? And then I watched the movie. Why are you telling me that, mom? That's like, pretty insane. I, I was like, like, I saw the movie when I was twelve, and I was like, yeah, you know, he's, he's going to be, he's nuts. And it was just like. I knew the end. It's like it's like it's going to be so well known down the road that Sixth Sense. Oh, he's he's dead the whole time. You but, know. But you know, I think it's great that you brought up Sixth Sense, and I think Sixth Sense is a dynamite movie. Uh, and yeah. I I saw Sixth Sense and didn't know the twist. And, I didn't either. Yeah. And I would still still see it again because I think yeah. it's so well done. But yeah. I have to say, I think Psycho is is the you have to put it at the top of movies that have twists that even after you know the twist, you can watch it again and again and again and again. Psycho, to this day, is, it, there's just, it is unsettling. It and, is. And, really? and then when you get to that last scene where, yes. and I think the last scene is so crazy because the psychiatrist or whatever explains, and you're like, yeah, that's satisfying. You've given us the explanation. But when yeah. you go back to Norman and he just looks into the camera, you're like, that explanation doesn't make me feel comfortable at all. <laughs> Yeah, he's like, hmm, I wouldn't even swap that side. <laughs> they'll see, they'll see. And he looks up at the camera. I've never seen a more evil look from a, a villain. It looks like he's like, eh. I was like, oh. <laughs> oh, man. And, you know, it's you were talking about something. Just This is the other thing that's so unsettling about the film, and it's not an effect or a sequence. It's that, you know, Janet Lee. I think the reason the movie is so jarring and sticks with us, too, is, you know, she does a bad thing. She steals yeah. money. 
but yeah. she's not a bad person, and you certainly don't want to see any harm come to her. And yeah. then she has the conversation with Norman, and she decides to return it. So it's yes. like, you it's know, she, she's made this thing of like, I'm going to be a good person, I'm going to do the right thing, and Hitchcock really messes with us because in movies, when a character does something that's morally right, we expect them to be okay. And the next thing that happens is she gets killed. And you're like, what the? Holy shit. Because it's, it's so like, it's so like, and then what happens is that the mother murders her in the shower. <laughs> you know, my... My gratitude to my father, among many things, he was he was a wonderful father, um, was he loved action movies. And and I love action films. And I really don't like when people poo-poo action movies. Right. Um, it really gets on my nerves. Because, it, it, you know, along with horror, action is the, the cinematic language that crosses borders. Every country can watch an action movie and love it. Mm -hmm. And to make a great action movie is extremely hard. And uh, so the thing I was thinking about when when I saw Mad Max Fury Road, which I'm a big fan of. Mm -hmm. I think you and I may may, may differ a little bit on that, but I I love Fury Road. Are you a Fury Road fan? I know we saw it together. I liked it. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, George Miller, same thing. You know, I'm a huge Road Warrior fan. I'm a huge Fury Road fan. I'm a huge Aliens fan. I'm a huge Terminator T2 fan. That kind of filmmaking, I think, you know, we'll have to get Cameron on a podcast, mm-hmm. I, or George Miller, I think is very laborious yeah. and very painstaking because you have to shoot a ton of inserts, a ton of very exact shots. You have to set up the spatial relationships of everything. You have yeah. to set up how everyone's in danger. You have to pull the stunts off. You have to make people think. Yeah people are in danger when they're clearly not you have to do all this smoke and mirror stuff and i i feel like you know you hear these stories like we shot that sequence for a month yeah we shot that and, and it's three minutes in the well, movie you know so we're talking about psycho and when i think of psycho i do think of i i think of it in the same way i think of 2001 which is a movie that just changed everything 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 yes. and and you know to this day, it's so amazing that really everything that came after it doesn't really match it. You yeah. can't you can't really say like, oh, Psycho was good until this movie came, and yeah. you can't yeah. really say like 2001 was good until this sci-fi movie came. No, they're classics because they stand the test Alien, of time. Aliens, Terminator T2, even Wrath of Khan, and then earlier you talked about Jaws. You know what all those movies have in common? Bad guys that are relentless. Oh yeah, yeah. Even Khan, even though he's only human, out they're of killing all, machines. They're killing machines. Yeah, they cannot be bargained with. They cannot be rationalized with. They are going to pursue until you kill them. That's true of the aliens. That's true of the Terminator. That's true of Jaws. Ah. and it's actually true of 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 Khan. Even, and they don't really even have have a weakness or character flaw. No. You just you just have to figure out how to stop the unstoppable. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know that I read it. I I hear that. I hear that. But I mean, what would the alternative be? What would what would the alternative ending be? She starts killing rich dudes. Well, no, <laughs> widows. Still, she realizes that this detective is not 
a person that she can relate to. That's true. And she (laughs) says, I need to find my place in the world instead of becoming this guy's wife and having, uh, Uh, and becoming my mother. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Billy Wilder, yeah. Billy Wilder in this thing, I only watched 20 minutes of it. The the Billy Wilder vocal or Schlongdorf, uh, Billy speaks. He said another thing about Ernst Lubitsch, Mm -hmm. who, who, who I love and he loved. Uh, but he said, you know, most filmmakers' tendencies is to go two plus two equals four. Also, one plus three equals four. Also, four plus zero equals four. Just so you know, it equals four. Right. <laughs> yeah. And he said, Lubitsch said two plus two. Mm. And stopped. And he said, that's what made, he let you add it up. And that's what made Lubitsch uh. Lubitsch. And I was like, oh, Billy Wilder. Oh, man. Okay, well, let's leave it on that open question. Open question. It's okay. Pound it out. Third podcast. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> Thank you, Matt. My pleasure. It's been an awesome experience. I love this. Well, I'm going to cut it together. I'll send it to you. Take a listen. Make sure you like it. All and, right. And, I mean, we'll talk in the next week or two anyway. Yeah, do and, it again. Yeah, and uh, there'll be plenty more movies. And, and this is the inaugural podcast to Secret Movie Club and it was with Brian Hatfield. What's your middle name, Brian? Joseph. Joseph. Brian Joseph Hatfield, May 11th, 2018. It's uh, 6.36 p.m. Pacific time, 9.36 uh, p.m. Eastern time. And uh, your your name is? Craig Herbert Hamill. Craig Herbert Hamill. All right. All right, man. We'll do it again. Sounds good. Peace, brother. All right. Thanks, man. Talk to you soon. All right. Bye-bye. <laughs> You were talking about clarity and knowing when uh, when to explain. I think it, what it is is maybe it's the it's trust that we can put together the elements of the story that are human, but knowing that we have to put together they have to put together the parts that are I don't want to say not human. No, totally. But they, they have to do their job. Yeah. You know, the audience can't can't know the cinematic space. Yeah. That's not fair. Right. So we, I think you're right. I think you've hit it. A good director does her or his job. My job is to lay out the rules. Yeah. But then I'm not going to explain the rules to you and play the game. I'm going to let you play the game with me. Yeah. But you know the rules. I know the rules. Let's play together. All right. Anything else you want to say about Terminator? We'll wrap it up tonight. Oh, man. It's 11.10. Oh, Marta. It's early. Wife. <laughs> it is. We should. I have no. A, I, I would say that it. Um, it's 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 thirty two years old. Thirty four. Thirty four years old. Um, still dynamite, and it's still dynamite. It's as good as it ever was. Maybe and better. It well, it certainly stands out from the bunch. Yeah. It, it, in the eighties, it could have been seen as, "Hey, that was a great movie," but again, like these movie, other movies, talking about. If you haven't seen it, go see it. There's a reason why we're still talking about it. It it it's it kicks ass. And also real fast, it does something else. We forgot to mention there's a scene where she goes to the cops and the cops because she knows that someone's killing Sarah Connors. Yeah. And so it's they're like, Oh, maybe it's a weird serial killer who's just killing everyone with his name or going down the phone book, or whatever. Stay here. This is the safest place you can be. 
is in the middle of a police station. There's 35 cops. You couldn't be in a safer place. And Cameron shows that not even that place is safe from the Terminator. That's pretty ballsy. Yeah. That's, like, kind of brilliant. Yeah. Like no, everything. If you're not safe in the middle of a police station, surrounded by 35 cops, where are you safe? Right. Right. And he does the great thing of she, in the end, kills the Terminator. Yeah. It's that thing of the hero is totally inadequate in a way, in a way. Mm-hmm. In other ways, they're totally matched, as she is. Because Linda Hamilton's great in T1 and T2. Yeah. Um, but in some ways, as a regular human being who's a waitress, yeah. she's totally unmatched to this killing machine. And, and and that's okay, because she's just a regular person. She's not... It's it's not like these other movies where, like, the, the especially sometimes these movies with a female sort of... Uh, victim, for lack of a better word, is her main character, where they're just feeble, you right. know? There's no way... She's she's a regular person. There's no way she's matched for this thing. Yet, at the end, she rises to the occasion. Exactly. Yeah. And that's Instead the... Instead of crumbling. Right. And I think maybe that's another thing of cinema, is in the end, I think maybe it hits a truth. Like, you were yeah. talking about how a dua ex machina can work when it puts the the character at a worse disadvantage. Yeah. Because maybe that resonates with our understanding of existence. And I think when a regular person rises to the challenge, not because they wanted to, not because they were a genius, but because they had to, and they were just able to do it just because she just barely is able to do it. Sure. Um, That resonates with sometimes we can rise to insurmountable challenges, even though we didn't think we could. It's okay that Michael Bean saves her... I don't know how many times up until that point. It's not because he's from the future. He's got the tools to save her. But he couldn't save her the last time. She had to save herself. That's what makes it satisfying. Right. And again, makes it brilliant. Yeah. All right. All right, then. Good conversation. All right, man, listen. All right, so there you go. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, Happy New Year. I'm looking forward to making 2022, uh, you know, onwards and upwards. Let's make movies. Let's screen movies. Let's figure this out. Uh, You know, I wrote a blog piece this week uh, about uh, Pig, which I really enjoyed. The Nicholas and Alex Wolf starring Pig, directed by Michael Sarnowski. Um, And also, I I just, in that blog piece, just talked about 2022. And I'll just say, you know, I'll repeat a line I wrote in there. You know, cinema and storytelling, the power of cinema and storytelling is eternal. And uh, we got a lot of work to do. So I wish everybody the best. Let's uh, get to work and uh, make 2022 the year that cinema came roaring back. As always, you can write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. Check out everything we do at secretmovieclub.com or just get tickets by Googling Eventbrite. Go to our Eventbrite page and follow us, Eventbrite and Secret Movie Club. All right. I wish you all the best wherever you are, whoever you are. Uh, watch great movies. Thank you for everything you've given us. Uh, and let's let's do even more and make even more in 2022. Okay. Peace. <laughs>